Houston, the big screen and movies review and discussion podcast. I am a one of your critics, Joshua Tracy. And I'm Corbin Keller. And we're in the middle of shoving food in our faces, so we're going to be oscillating ourselves on and off of mute as we go here. Um, because life is hard and we have a time crunch with Oscars being just a couple weeks away, so we want to make sure we're getting everything in. And to that effect, we have not one, not two, but three movies to get into today. So, Corwin Heller, where would you like to start in the uh, Old West Montana, uh, in the 1950s Upper West Side, uh, or in modern day Tokyo? Montana is where I started. All right. Then we're talking about Power of the Dog. So uh, Power of the Dog was written and directed by Jane Campion. It's based on a book by Thomas Savage. The film stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons. Uh, the film, oh, I'm not, we're not going to have a budget. Yeah. Uh, 35 to $40 million at the box office of around $380,000. But this is a Netflix movie, so that you know budget is suspected or not budget. The box office is suspect the best. I do expect all of that is uh, foreign, maybe New Zealand releases. This film was made entirely in New Zealand, so I wouldn't be surprised if it had a limited release, strictly geographically speaking, within New Zealand. Um, yeah, we'll see. Or no, we won't see. But who cares? Uh, this film has a tagline. Aha, the tagline for this movie is what it means to be a man. Eh. Who cares? Pretty spot on, but at the same time, like, wow, like that's genuinely the most cliche thing I've ever heard. Uh, could be applied to almost any movie ever. True. Very true. Uh, we are talking um, hairspray. Can't be used for hairspray. I certainly can be, big buddy. <laughs> Christopher Walken knows what it means to be a man. What it means to be a man. (laughs) This film is nominated for 12 Oscars. This film is nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role for Cody Smith-McPhee. Best Adapted Screenplay for Jane Campion. Best Achievement in Directing by Jane Campion. Best Motion of the Picture of the Year for Jane Campion. Tanya Sagachian, Emile Sherman, Ian Canning, and Roger Frappier. Best performance by an actor in a supporting role for Jesse Plemons. Best performance by an actor in a leading role for Benedict Cumberbatch. Best performance by an actress in a supporting role for Kirsten Dunst. Best achievement in production design for Grant Major and Amber Richards. Best sound for Richard Flynn, Robert McKenzie, and Tara Webb. Best achievement in cinematography for Ari Wegner. Best achievement in sound, sorry, film editing for Peter Sibaris. And best achievement in music written for motion pictures, original score for Johnny Greenwood. So a whole slew of nominations. The film is about a charismatic rancher, Phil Burbank, inspires fear and awe in those around him. When his brother brings home a new wife and her son, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love. Um, Because... We did not pick these movies individually, even by assignment. We're, I'm just going to start for all of them because it'll be a little bit easier. Um, so I'll get us started. Uh, I I got to say, I did not enjoy this movie. 
Um, yeah, I'm in so, that boat. Which is really unfortunate. Well, but you, you keep know, we'll, it. I'll just yeah, I'll make yeah, my we'll, yeah, you'll you'll have your time, bitch. Um, <laughs> I I will say I thoroughly enjoyed the last like 30 minutes of this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I I really enjoyed the last you know 25 30 minutes of this movie, but oh my god! I I mean it takes so incredibly long to get into with genuinely so little intrigue along the way. And, you know, I'm sure that this book was a very big deal when it came out in terms of expressing homosexuality or or sexual identity amongst cowboys. But this movie is not present at all. The original Brokeback Mountain. That's, and, that's what I, and that's what I was about to say. Like, Brokeback, Brokeback Mountain did this 17 years ago. Holy shit, that was 17 years ago? I, I'm going like, to double check myself, but I'm pretty sure that was 2005. Don't get me wrong. I This is just like a holy shit, we're old type of deal. Like, I fully believe that came out in 2005. 2005, yeah. yeah 2005 was 17 years ago. Yeah, we're, we're getting up there, buddy. Um, and, and look, the... I understand again that there are there's there's no limit on how many times you can tell a story. And we're always retelling stories. And I, I do understand that. But the idea of homosexuality as taboo within an artistic expressionist sense, it's not new. And no. to 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 present it as so tense with seemingly no stakes like at all to their relationship really just made this drag because the film never presents to you what the drawbacks to Phil being gay is when, when you they don't show in Brokeback Mountain until, what like 75% of the way through the movie and, well, and that's the other issue yeah light just very light hint at that yeah, and that's the other part is that the, the the film doesn't reveal the plot to you until way later in. Um, in fact, it got it, it took so long that I uh, turned to Kel while watching the movie and said, "Didn't Kirsten Dunst have a kid? Where did he go?" And then he comes back because he was at college, uh, which I forgot. Uh, and then the movie seems to really start when he gets back from college, which made the first whole like forty minutes feel like fucking useless. Um, but it, the film never provides to you any stakes that Phil has. And to that effect, it feels like it's a book because Phil's struggle against his own homosexuality is clearly internal, but without getting a real sense of what that looks like for him, what that means for him, what the concepts behind his masculinity and homosexuality that he is grappling with, there's no outlet for it in the movie. So I'm just to understand that Phil sees himself as a tough guy man man and doesn't want to be gay because that's not an original idea that that's not a unique concept that we're talking glee has done this like like it's so played out that's our benchmark for film has glee done this well, no, that, that's my benchmark for oh my god we're done with this line of storytelling <laughs> like and, and to do so and the 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 back setting of of a podunk nothing place in the middle of montana in like 1911 or whatever oh my god it was brutal 
So I read for a while. Why don't you tell me what you thought? I thought this was an incredibly well-made movie in a technical sense, but truly one of just the most boring movies I've seen. And, uh, you know, you know, there's movies I've liked less and there's movies that have been just as boring. But the fact that it was this clearly well done from a technical sense, like the time, effort, budget, everything you would want to have for a special movie was here, except for a storyline and uh, screenplay that made anyone give a shit about either the characters or just the plot as it is carried out. I mean, I did not give a single fuck about any of these characters. I, I didn't like I I've read into the book and the storylines and the plot that the book portrayed once I finished because I wanted to know why the, this was both incredibly um, beloved by critics and also clearly there's either something I'm missing or just something that is beyond what I'm seeing and the plot lines in the book seem to be incredibly well thought out and acted out, I guess, written out. They're really, to an extent, I think (laughs) Benedict Cumberbatch, excuse me, um, doesn't deserve to be in this movie because he is just a perform. He is providing a performance that is so significantly above anything else you see in this. I mean, I get that there's a lot to be said about, you know, um, what's the term for it? Just the little things that aren't there to, you know, shove shove it right in your face and whatnot and intricacies that you have in acting. But my goodness, it's like you're watching two different films with the two different ways that this was being portrayed. And it just took me out of it so much. I just... I just could not find the will to care about this any more than just, oh, that's a beautiful landscape. The first 95% of which falls under that category. The last five is fantastic. Like you said, the last. Corbin? Uh, I mean, the last 5% of which, you know, this movie is beautifully done and everything just gets drawn right back in together from the opening line of the film. You're finally given that context that you're just kind of sitting through the film wondering, you know, what, what are we after? What is the goal of this film? What are we trying to accomplish? What, like you just get absolutely no information in the two hours of runtime. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, so let's get into it a little bit. That's that's one of my biggest problems with this because they paint such a, a dark and ominous tone throughout the film that and and they give you no real semblance of what we're going to be going through emotionally. That mm-hmm. I thought this was going to be like a suspense movie for a part of it. Exactly. Because and like you said earlier, where there's no uh, what did you say? Where there's stakes. You don't, there's no stakes. 
Phil's an asshole, you have no idea why Phil's an asshole and you have no idea why Phil being an asshole is a problem. Yeah, and it's not until like 45 minutes in when he goes and touches the the stuff of uh, fucking Wild Bill Honcho or whatever that Uh, shit fucking dude's name was supposed to be that. And even then it's like, oh, I guess he's gonna I guess he's gay, which is weird because they they don't come out and say it. And they don't even really allude to it at first. And it's like, I'm only assuming that he's gay because I haven't found the plot of this fucking movie yet. And it's the only thing that makes sense. Not even like they did anything that made you actually assume he was, you know, gay the whole time. Literally just that, like, this has to mean something. Something eventually has to mean something. The only thing I got in the entire film that led me to believe that until I started trying to put the pieces together after finishing the film was the scarf he wore in the river while taking a bath. Right. That was, it was, it was the scene so right after the one I'm talking and about. And just like, there's yeah. no other reason to have that in here whatsoever. I, I don't know why else something like that would be there. Other than like, to slightly hinted that. In retrospect, maybe you could say that, like, you know, Phil gives uh, Peter, I think that was the kid's name, so much shit for being a a Nancy and uses the F slur um, pretty early on. And I I guess that you're supposed to maybe in retrospect view that as him quelling his own sexuality and lashing out at his own sexuality. But this movie takes place at such an era that that would have been excruciatingly common that I really didn't read into it at all beyond the fact of like, oh, yeah, well, that shit probably happened a lot back then. <laughs> right. <sighs> and really, I think this film does such a poor job of oscillating between its storylines. Because for significant portions of the beginning, I, I couldn't remember who was nominated for which award. I couldn't remember if Benedict Cumberbatch was a supporting actor nom or if Jesse Plemons was the supporting actor nom. And when the movie starts, they spend so much time on Jesse Plemons. I really thought this was his lead award nom. And eventually it just kind of goes away for a huge chunk of the movie, which, so it's like the beginning is mostly Jesse Plemons, not very much Phil or um, Benedict Cumberbatch. And then it's it's a little bit of like Peter and Kirsten Dunst. And then it's like a little bit more Phil, but still there's a lot of Jesse Plemons. And then it's Phil. And then it ends on Jesse Plemons. And it really doesn't kind of weave the story, I think, very well at all to the point where I I didn't realize time was even significantly passing uh, until I, I guess the kid who played Peter got back from college. And even then, I don't remember how long that was actually supposed to be, but his mother was like a full-blown alcoholic, and that really felt like it came out of nowhere. I I mean, she was... You know, let's talk about that for a bit, because that really bugged me. And again, it's very much so a book thing. What? uh, All of Kristen Dunst's character, or... The the alcoholism specifically. Well, I, I guess really then to that effect, her whole character. And I, I think that the alcoholism was meant to represent that she was, to a certain extent, being tormented by Phil and to another mm-hmm. extent, not acclimating well to home, to, to uh, an easier life. 
as well as the fact that her son left. Like, so she's got a little bit of empty nest thing going on. Mm-hmm. She is being taken care of very well for the first time in her life, seemingly. And that can, that can be hard. Having that much nothing to do can be very hard. And Phil was tormenting her. But it happens so fast because the movie doesn't balance its storylines well in terms of pacing that she yeah. went from saying early on in the movie, I hate drinking and really like put some vitriol on it to the point where it's like, I, you don't need to go this hard. It's, 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 it's one line, but it's like, she doesn't need to hate it. I guess that's what I'm saying. She goes from complete opposite ends over the course of about 30 minutes of movie. And that's not so a lot what? of movie to have such a gigantic opposition. It'd be one thing if she just said, I didn't drink, I don't really drink much. I, I, I'm too busy with work. And so what it, I read into, sorry, God, you still got Well, I was just going to say, that might be something that happens in the book, but that's one of the things that might need to be adapted for book pacing versus movie pacing. We constantly talk about changes that need to be made to help translate the story. And if a sto- if the book has a hundred pages to make that transition happen and you have 30 minutes, maybe she shouldn't be so strongly opposed to the idea of alcohol and be indifferent towards it because you cannot express that change over a slow enough period of time for it to feel organic. Sorry, but what were you going to say? It's not even that complicated. It's literally just information that they did not think to include where the alcoholism is what killed her husband. And that's why it was such a big deal and why she hated it so much was because her husband died from like assumedly alcohol poisoning. That was a huge part of the book and just was not touched upon. So Kristen Dunn's entire character arc was meant to focus around her first marriage with Peter's father was incredibly abusive, resulting from his intense alcoholism, which killed him. And now she was lost without a husband, struggling to survive. Oh, she finds a nice man to marry and take care of her. But his brother is this lunatic who is putting her through the same things that um, her prior husband put her through and now she's falling upon those same vices and just perpetuating that cycle and it's never touched upon in the film whatsoever we don't even know what kills her husband what you know that alcoholism is an issue that should be noted in any way um and it's just absolute lunacy that you would leave out such major plot points so thoroughly you know, actually, they did mention how his father died in the movie. But he but had, was, was it just it, passing information? Uh, I don't it's it was made a point, but not focused on. And it was that his father had hung himself. This he Peter said right. his dad was an alcoholic and he hanged himself. And, and he found him. Yeah. And then that was kind of it, which. Also, just to throw in another tidbit, that's why Peter rubs his thumb across the comb because it's meant to sound like a rope under tension. Oh, that's interesting. Which you would never get 
No, so because I actually interpreted his character as being autistic. And that was like a that was like a a, a right. tick or, or or like a comfort sound or a comfort feeling. You know, Quinn actually had the same um who works in that field had the same uh, diagnosis, I guess. The same reading of that. Yeah, the same reading would be a better way to put it. Yeah, because that that's fast. And that's but that's also the thing is like without knowing that information in the slightest, like we're talking character changing levels of information. Right. Which is just such an intricate piece that is just a perfect bit of information to add that you just get absolutely none of because they just don't bother, you know, actually going into that. Well, and to the extent that I would say it would be easier to just take out the comb bit. Because, yeah. again, you have to consider what will translate into a visual medium. And if you can't cleanly provide the backstory for the comb, it's going to come across a different way. We're already supposed to understand the Peter character as being an other in some way. They keep calling him Nancy and whatnot. But, again, because it's the time period that it is it's very easy for that to be dismissed as being well any effeminate guy is going to be called a nancy and with our modern day understanding of sexuality just because someone is effeminate does not make them gay at all and because he kept doing this thing with the the comb and he seemed kind of socially inept which again we're later to i guess understand to be in some way tied back to how he interacts with people from his sexuality or how he's meant to have interacted with people because because of his dad um there's a different backstory but when you combine that very socially awkward behavior with the the comb thing and the fact that he is clearly meant to be read as an other i spent the first 30 minutes of the movie thinking he was like autistic and that was going to be his arc and instead it's like oh no i'm gay the whole time everyone was right when they called me the f slur I really am just gay. And it's like oh, so many things gave us cues and I think that was going to be the case. But is there ever anything even confirming the fact that he would be? Or is it still just strong? Just tension, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I will uh, say this is the shortest film of the three that we watched this week by almost an hour. And this deserved to be far and away the longest. I think you might be right. I, I, in... I mean, this was what, an hour 35, an hour 45? This was two hours. Was it? Two hours and six minutes. <laughs> we needed so much more information. Honestly, I needed this to be a whole different interpretation of this book. I, I don't think based on how they presented it, that there's really enough information for me to, to draw. Like, I don't understand why Jesse Plemons needed to be in the movie. Uh, other than to marry... What's your other face? than Kirsten to marry Kirsten Dunst. After that, he, I don't know why he, he was really there. Just narrative progression. He has oh, so, no art. He has yeah. barely any backstory, which... I, I remember reading things about how he had a deeper character arc in the book, which I don't doubt in any extent, but we got none of it the way we got it. So it doesn't yeah. matter. 
I mean, it's 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 absolutely perplexing because of how much is made of his character from the nomination he received. And he did a great job, but I, I really expect him to be quite pivotal in what his character, how his character interacted with those around him to the point where, you know, it would be obvious why he was getting this nomination. And instead, like you said, his character seems to mostly just be narrative. Like, mm-hmm. uh, oh, yes, I married Kirsten Dunst. Now here is her son who was gay, just like my brother. Um, ah, I am bringing the governor to the house, um, which will be another reason wh- how another manner in which Phil can torment Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. Like, like there, there's I can't think of a single scene he really has with anyone where he gets to be emotional outside of the um, Kirsten Dunst trying to show him how to dance like five minutes into the movie. And then yeah. after that, he, he's not he's. He doesn't do any real work in the movie. Not his fault. They just didn't ask anything of him, which is weird. So this had nine nominations, correct? Twelve. Are any of them for screenplay? Yes. Oh, God. If it wins, this is just... This is Bohemian Rhapsody levels of awful wins. I... And it, it uh, th- this feels like, you know, it's a very Academy movie. It is a period piece. We've talked about how the Academy loves a good period piece, loves it. And it's about a topic that is social issues related, but about a decade too late. And boy, does the Academy loves that too. Um, <laughs> and don't get me wrong, like, there's nothing wrong with, with, with stories of, the homosexuality still being prevalent, even though it might be a little bit old hat. This representation of it, though, is just wildly outdated from from a storytelling perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I and there's so much again that just I don't think translated cleanly. Like I don't know if you have any insight to this, but the thing that was made about the uh, the dead cow being skinned by Peter, and then that skin being the the rope the hide used for the rope for Peter, which ultimately led to Phil's death. Was that intentional? Because the ending made it kind of vague. That's the whole thing of not knowing what that opening line of the film was about until the very end. The film opens with Peter saying, what kind of man would I be if I didn't, you know, if I did nothing while my mother was being hurt? I don't even remember that. Yeah, it's not something I remembered whatsoever until I was done watching the movie and looked it up. But yeah, Peter was intentionally, you know, trying to kill him the whole time. Or once he saw that he couldn't just befriend him and and make it easier on him. And hey, okay, let's this is my chance to do something about it. Not portrayed in any meaningful way whatsoever, but that's what it was in the book. And you see, the thing is, like, I liked that. I really did. But they they went so vague with it that I don't think it landed emotionally because it seems like the last shot is him smiling after his parents come back from Phil's funeral, essentially. And I kept sitting there thinking like, all right, is he happy that Phil is dead because he completed his plan? Or is he just kind of generically happy with his disposition in life because he for a brief moment got to experience what was a fruitful relationship. And I, I get that there's like, he was studying medicine. Fruit, Josh. Was very, Sorry, say uh, again. 
That was a very nice usage of the word fruit. Way to go. No, oh, yeah, thanks. Um, because like I kept fighting it because part of part of it was like, like I know he's studying medicine, so he would understand the idea of anthrax. But at the same time, if it was so happenstance, seemingly how he found the cow that it almost did feel innocent because it seemed like he didn't know anything. But at the same time, like I kept waffling back and forth because again, it feels like something that should have um, inner monologue or or understanding of thought progression in a written page that uh, wow, you don't get visually and he's so inept at everything he does on the farm that it's not unthinkable to be like oh he's just not experienced in this one way or hasn't gotten that far in college no one i mean he's studying medicine how 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 long does it take to get to the anthrax part of medicine it it feels like it would take a little while especially in 1925 there's not that much medicine not much to learn it's a three-week course (laughs) it's a certificate I mean, at the end of the day, it just comes down to you are guessing at plot lines for 90% of the movie if you do not have the knowledge of the book going into it. Now, one more question I have about the book, and then we can move on from this because we, we have two more movies to talk about. Unless you have more talking points, but I'll ask no, you that more I, in a second. I um, not think I would be talk, spending this much time talking about it. Does the book, to your knowledge... Give you, I know, but you've done more research than I have. So if, if you know, does it mention the passage of the power of the dog prior to the final lines of the book? Uh, No. Uh, Other than it being like the mountain behind them, like the Bronco, Bronco Mendenhall, whoever the guy was, saw that like barking dog. That was the only connection to that phrase and the only connection that. I found in my 30 minutes of research. Okay. I don't know what that even means. Well, and that's part of why I am going to complain about that as well, is that the name of the movie clearly carries so much weight. Mm-hmm. It is It is a longer title that has some level of poeticism to it, that is kind of difficult to understand until we get to the end of the movie, and then we understand it to be a passage from the Bible. But biblical passages are not typically so easily understood. They're they're like typically thousands of years of war based off of the fact that we don't really know what it means. Yeah. Right, and there's many courses for people who grew up in churches that are meant to discuss what different passages mean because it is difficult language. And so to deliver that onto us at the end of the movie was a weird choice. And that's why I'm wondering if it came from the book or not, because I felt like I just got so much new information in that one scene that I couldn't believe they were ending on it. Phil is actually a golden retriever wearing human skin the entire film. That's why he's so angry. He's a dog. You like dags? I like dags. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, um, well, yeah. I like dags. Well, proper fucked. One of my favorite fucking lines. I'd love to be able to watch that movie this week if oh, we had fuck. a choice. Proper fucked. No. Um. Yeah. Uh, 
there there is more to, to say. I have I have so much so much more to say, but we're gonna cut it out here just because again, there's more movies to talk about. Uh, for ratings and reviews, I, I guess since I started, I'll just keep starting. Um, it's a two hour long movie that feels like it takes forever, absolutely forever, and to the point where it is frustrating. A lot of times with these quiet movies, especially old westerns, and as I've said on this podcast, I grew up on old westerns. My dad loves old westerns, and I can certainly appreciate the quietness and slow pace of an old western that feels like it was directed straight by Ansel Adams. Like, I I like it. I get it. But this has none of that. There's none of the tranquility of that old western feel that allows you to just kind of take in scenery and fall asleep on a Sunday at two o'clock in the afternoon. It it is a weird movie that wants you to feel something and you do not get to understand it until so far into the movie that it is no longer enjoyable. Um, This is a two for me, I think. I'm I'm tempted to go lower, but the acting is good here. I have mixed feelings because I truly think that if I watch this a second time, knowing all of I, all that I know going into it, I would thoroughly enjoy this film. Uh, the problem is I, I have to rate this off of the first time. I think I'll give it a three uh, just off of that. Um, I think it could be a three and a half solidly if this was a second viewing with all of that knowledge going into it. And, you know, it's not an uncommon phenomenon for us to see a movie that interests us in a way. I don't mean just corn and I, any, any of us do more information or even just watch it again. Cause you like the movie and find more things that help you better understand the character motivations or small jokes that you miss that are funny um, or, or foreshadowing that you would not understand until you saw the end of the movie. But the difference between that and this for me is that I did not enjoy this the first time around. I, 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 everything I have learned about this movie that would genuinely make me enjoy it the second time around is done on the part of someone's else's research into it just to kind of make the movie make more sense. And that's not fun. Right. But we'll leave this to the side. Um, where's there's more to discuss. All right. Uh, fucking uh, Tokyo or New York. Where do you want to go? Uh, Tokyo. All right. Then we are talking about Drive My Car, um, which was uh, came out this past year. It is directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Sorry, everybody. I'm not good with these names. This was based on a short story by Haruki Murakami. Uh, It's written by Ryusuke Hamaguchi and Takamasa Oh. It stars Hidetoshi Nishijima, Toko Miura, and Reika Kirishima. I'm so surprised I did not stutter my ass through most of those names, Um, but I'm sure I mispronounced everything, so still, I am sorry. Um, (laughs) This movie had an estimated budget. Uh, oh, wow. I actually don't have anything at all. So no idea. 
Well, I do they see... didn't have much of a car budget. I'll give you that. I, I guess that's true. It had a cumulative worldwide gross of $5.1 million, which, again, COVID, who knows? This was not a streaming release. It's now available on HBO Max. But this was an in-theaters-only release for quite some time. So, um, but again, it's impossible to really gauge anything at this point in time, especially with this being an indie movie. It's who cares? Uh, This film is currently nominated for four Oscars. It is nominated for Best Motion Picture of the Year for Teruhisa Yamamoto, Best Achievement in Directing for Ryusuke Hamaguchi, Best Adapted Screenplay for Ryusuke Hamaguchi and Takamasa Oh, and Best International Feature Film for Japan. That's right. If this film wins that award, everybody in Japan gets a little statue. But it's a really little one because they have to total the size of one normal sized one. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's really, really small. Um, the film is about uh, after his wife's unexpected death, Yusuke Kafuku, a renowned stage actor and director, receives an offer to direct a production of Uncle Vanya in Hiroshima. There, he begins to face the haunting mysterious mysteries his wife left behind. And I would kind of disagree with that <laughs> summation of this film, uh, but I will get us started. There's a singular mystery she left behind that is minimum at best. And not discussed until there are about 15 minutes left in this movie, <laughs> yeah. which is three hours long. Uh, this is a weird movie. This is very, very long. And it, it, it certainly takes its time. Um, and I, I definitely, I enjoyed it while also yearning for more. Like I found myself engaged in what was happening and engaged in this aspect of, um, I guess, the theater industry and, and this, this concept of relationship that's showing us between the two, between Yusuke and um, his wife, Oto, but I kept finding myself about every 30 minutes going, gee, what the fuck are they going to do next? Because it seems like nothing has happened. Like, for instance, the cold open of this movie is 40 minutes long. And you may be saying, Josh, it's not a cold open if it's 40 minutes long. Uh, I, and I agree with you. But the credits, the opening title credits of this movie, the title card for this movie does not come on until minute 40. And then there's two hours and 20 more minutes of movie. It is long. And very frequently I found myself saying, what am I supposed to learn? And I, 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 I'm, I, I like what I'm watching. And I think I am getting small things out of it, but it almost feels so small that I don't really get why it's taking so long. So I have, I have some pretty mixed feelings here, uh, but I'll pass it over to you, Corwin. I, I thought this was a very similar movie to um, uh, Power of the Dog in that it is a very slow burn without a very strong overarching narrative you know, plot line that you know, it's not linear. You don't know where we're going. You don't know exactly what we're doing here. It's just kind of a slow burn. You're along for the ride. You're going to figure it out. But where I hated Power of the Dog pretty extensively 
throughout. There was never a time where like this started and I was like, oh, I, I love this movie. And then it kind of teetered off. I kind of like this movie through and through start to finish, even though I kind of picked up pretty quick that this was going to be a slow going. It held my interest so much better. And I really like trying to just follow along with like, what the fuck is this guy going to do with his life? Like, where is he going? Like, why is he staying with his wife? What is happening? Why is he dealing with this actor that, Clearly slept with his wife. I kind of was, I had my curiosity held. And I know that's not much of a, you know, breakdown of a, or a critique of a film. But, you know, seeing as I watched this right after watching Power of the Dog, it was, it stood out a lot how, boy, this is incredibly slow and incredibly long. But I don't care. I don't mind at all. Uh, I would I would generally agree. Um, I I I was I also watched this after watching Power of the Dog, and thought, boy, howdy, this is like Power of the Dog. But wow, am I enjoying it so much more? Yeah. Um, and the ideas it presents are interesting when it presents them. That I think is the big difference between this and Power of the Dog. Power of the Dog is never telling you what the movie is about. And doesn't really give you anything to latch onto along the way. And this also doesn't really reveal what it's about until significantly farther into the movie. But it mm-hmm. does give you moments to kind of latch onto as you go. Like the conversation that Yusuke has with uh, Takatsuki, Takats- Takatsuki. Oh, I said it right the first time. Takatsuki. That was a fascinating conversation about love and about what Oto meant to him and the fear behind confrontation and why he ultimately chose not to. I, I mean, it because when, when Yusuke comes home to see Oto sleeping with another man, my my gut reaction is like fucking get his ass. Like I'm sitting there, like right. in back of the head to him, rock him in the Domington, and then you know this movie is going to be about him covering up a murder, and then no, <laughs> and he just like leaves and then skypes her later that night, and it's like, whoa, that's not where I thought this. Was. And I I turned to Kyle, I was like, yeah. ah, so this is the movie that's about, and then no, it's not, and it felt like every thirty minutes you'd get another one of those. But again, my, my drawback being I, every 30 minutes, I kept asking myself, wow, what, where is it going? Um, and to that effect, I guess let's talk about the plot a little bit. There really isn't much of one. Uh, it's a very small plot, considering the fact that this movie is three hours long. Um, oh. Yusuke is an actor and a director, stage actor and stage director, who in the beginning of the movie is playing Uncle Vanya in the Anton Chekhov play, Un- Uncle Vanya, which is a real play. And if you're saying to yourself, hey, Chekhov, that name sounds familiar. That's the guy who came up with the concept of Chekhov's gun, which if you have a gun, you have to fire it. Um, Real guy, real play, all that. Um, He's playing Uncle Vanya, and then, you know, then his his wife dies, and then two years later, he gets asked to direct a new production of Uncle Vanya and takes it. And then he directs the play. 
And that's the movie. Right? I mean, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy how, in again, such a similar way to Power of the Dog, there is a, you know, literary piece that is tied heavily to this that if you don't really know what it is before starting, you don't really get any major insight about what it's about. But contrary to that is you don't actually have to know the intricate plot points to know the main narrative, you know, hits that you are, are coming across. You can fully follow this storyline and all of the intricacies of what it's trying to portray without having to have, you know, a literary degree prior to watching this film. I, I, I think one of the reasons it feels like that is because there's something for you to take away, even though the plot might not necessarily be so clear. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting that we get to kind of have this comparative conversation because Power of the Dog was so similar and different in a lot of these aspects. Because even though I can be sitting here watching Drive My Car and say, I, I don't necessarily know what the plot of this movie is or how this will contribute to the plot of the movie, I can still take something meaningful away from this. Like I do not know how having a deaf actress doing sign language is going to ultimately shake the plot of this film as it goes forward. But I do know that that is a very interesting conversation around what it means to be an actor or an actress, um, what it means to be deaf, how we communicate non-verbally. Like there was a lot of interesting things you could take away from that. Whereas say in, in the scene where Phil is torturing um, Kirsten Dunst by playing the banjo better than she's playing piano. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from that. Outside oh, of, uh, is That's he just like, yeah, like, it, it, what does he mean? Did is, she do something? Is, is she not, is he not he like doing her? doing to be nice to try and help her along with the song? Or is he a dick? I don't know. And those are very different things that he could be doing. Right. And it's like, in either instance, deaf actress and playing banjo, I, I do not know how those things are going to affect the overall plot of the movie. But I do know I can start thinking and take something away from, from the deaf actress conversation that happens within the, the confines of Drive My Car. I have no idea and will spend that entire scene wrestling with what it is during the banjo playing scene. And those are two very different experiences. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and that's what I think Drive My Car does well. Like it, it does give you so many of those where it's it can for me anyway still feel a little bit like okay but what is the plot of the movie but it does give you enough of those moments where you can say oh that is very interesting I do not know how I feel about that um, or I, I have not approached anything in that way and I, I, I would not have thought to um, as you kind of are slowly uncovering the plot I really hate how power of the dog is getting such intense support and media coverage for the academy awards and i didn't even know 
power of, or and drive my cars you know was even a film before we started doing this you know this week because i think it is an incredibly similar movie that if you like one you probably or if you like power of the dog you would love this and if you really just couldn't fall in love with power of the dog i think you would still fall in love with this and it's never going to get the win compared to you know the chances of power of the dog because it's a foreign film mm-hmm. a foreign film without nearly as much um public attention Oscar and baby. intrigue as a foreign film like parasite uh, yeah but i i think you know the, the film also i i think really does a great job as a look back whereas power of the dog looking back it's like oh all right the movie finally makes a little bit more sense now that i've seen the end and that's annoying because i had to see the whole movie for it to make a little bit more sense whereas with power of the dog you know looking with drive my car looking back because a a lot of the ideas of the movie the title of the movie and a lot of the ideas within the movie are passive you know or about letting go in some to some extent you know Drive my car. It, it it really is saying, I am letting go. Mm-hmm. You are now driving my car. You know, and Yusuke makes this point in the movie when he's talking to Takatsuke about control, you know, and he says to Takatsuke, like, you, you lack self-control. You know, it was... uh when they were at the bar and, and, and Takatsuke loses his cool over that guy taking a picture of them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, uh, Yusuke goes over and like pulls him back and was like, you don't have any control and that's your issue. And at the time, you know, it, it, it immediately for me tied back to you fucked my wife. You're such a fucking idiot. Like I'm not mad at my wife for, for cheating. I'm mad at you for being so stupid. That you would just be so reckless with your dick. <laughs> right. Right. In, in such a career altering way. Um, but looking back, it, it's also like Yusuke has his own ways in which he lacks. Or maybe has too much control and really needs to work on for himself, letting go of some of it, like driving his car and allow allowing that vulnerability to show him through. Because clearly that's one of his problems too. He is afraid of, or doesn't want anyway, someone else to drive his car an hour, two hours each day, one hour each way, and rehearse his lines in the vehicle while someone else is present because that's uncomfortable for him. And he does it. He does it, you know, I don't. I was messing pretty early on in the movie. It's probably like an hour into the movie. Um, but that is an instance where he is holding on to something and he has to learn to release it. And the same thing went with his performances, his performance of Uncle Vanya, you know, let, letting go showed to be physically difficult for him. And he was constantly having to, he was constantly reeling from it. Um, and it was the idea of him eventually having, to, you know, the conversation that they, that him and um, uh, Watari have, have in, in the car about, you know, him needing to, to, or, or I guess choosing in some way to, to let go of his, his wife physically and 
Watari letting him know that she he needed to let go of the fact that he was trying to ascribe so much meaning to his wife needing multiple men physically or something to that effect. Like it, the these ideas constantly kept coming up about the self-control angle and not until, you know, really quite a ways into the movie does it really seem show you that it's painting all of those pictures. And it's even, you know, further than that, the car itself, the time, like the age of the car fits in perfectly with the timeline of when they would have lost their daughter. Yeah, I actually I think it how all right, hold on. I'm gonna look it up. How old do you think the car is? I don't know nothing about cars. Um it looks like it's early to mid nineties. Which I mean, if they had the daughter would have been 23, so late 90s, you figured, all right, they probably bought the car a little bit before then. All right, all right. So the car is a 1987 Saab 900 Turbo. Okay, uh, so, so if this movie came out in 2001, that means the daughter would have been born in 1998. Which uh, honestly, though, I wouldn't be surprised. I I think you're probably still right because if I I would expect them to still have the car when she died. Right. Yeah, it's a very family centric car. Yeah, and it wouldn't be that old in 98. Right. And also the fact of they are clearly incredibly wealthy people, not incredibly, but very wealthy people who can afford to fix up a car consistently over 20 years. Yeah, they can keep it in pristine condition to hold on to the last semblance of his daughter. Well, and then and then that goes to show that you're right, because the end of the movie ends with a final shot of of uh, Watari having the car. He that was the final thing he was holding on to. I looked away for the scene immediately preceding that. So I missed, you know, if there was any dialogue subtitles, just like I missed that one part. And I saw her, you know, in the grocery store. It's like, all right, nothing crazy happened. I didn't really miss anything. And then she goes out to the car and it was just, oh my God, he died and I missed it. What the fuck (laughs) happened? (laughs) Had to rewind and go back. Yeah. I love this movie, Josh. This is my best picture. This was such an interesting movie. And that's the thing I can appreciate about it, that it is so different from the shit that you usually see. And and that's the thing that I have always brought up on the show. I appreciate a swing. I will always appreciate a swing. And this is a swing. This is a a long, quiet movie mm-hmm. where not very much drama in the grand sense that we understand it really happens. And instead, it is a series of small and quiet events that are very interesting and impactful. Like even about, uh, I keep thinking, forgetting the, the, the deaf actress's name. Um, Park Yurim as uh, Lee Yoon, Yoon Um Like even just her story, I thought was amazing. She was mm-hmm. already a fascinating character just from the idea of being deaf. And when she auditioned, I was blown away. And I thought to myself, I have never really considered uh, the the dramatics of sign language or like how sign language looks in a hefty 
emotional scene like this. Because mm-hmm. I feel like the only times I've see, really seen sign language in dramas is in movies like Coda and Mr. Holland's Opus, which we've talked about on the show. Because, and it's being juxtaposed towards music, where it's like, here's contrasts. They can hear and she can't. Um, and in this, it was like, no, she's just auditioning for a regular fucking role. And mm-hmm. she just has to sign it. And it was amazing. And then you find out later in the movie why she got into acting and, and pushed herself to audition in the first place. And it's an equally impactful and beautiful story. I, I mean, they, they, there's so many layers like that within the film where it's an already kind of interesting thing. And here, here's just a little bit more to it. And it just in, in that small and, and gentle way, that this layers itself so nicely. I, I really think they did a phenomenal job. Uh, do you want to get into ratings and review? Yes, we should. We need to move on. Um, I give this a four. I give this a solid four. I, I will wait. I know you're saying this might be your best picture. I'm going to hold off until I can I can look back at all of them and remember what the fuck they were and we can finish watching them. But uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to give it a four and a half. I thought it was incredibly well done. I think it's something where it's just as maybe not just as, but a very slow. I hate that we watched it with power of the dog because it's hard not to just straight up compare the two. Um, But it's such a better storyline and it's not just a quiet swing at the end of a two hour movie. It's a gradual and continuous grouping of swings. Um, But yeah, four and a half. Right on. All right, let's get into our last movie as we head to the Upper West Side of Manhattan as we talk about the remake of West Side Story uh, which was directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Tony Kushner, based on the stage play by Arthur Lawrence it stars Ansel Elgort, Rachel Zegler and Ariana DeBosa Uh, the film had an estimated budget of a hundred million dollars Wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like the money is definitely all on screen, but wow, it's still a wild number to see. It's like set are sets that expensive? I'd imagine they also had to have a ton of permits to close down as many streets as they definitely closed down. Was it on site in New York City? I don't know it for a fact. Uh, Patterson, New Jersey. I can't imagine Patterson's quite a hundred million dollar city. Oh, shit, they filmed at the Art Factory. I've been to the Art Factory. Oh, no, they also they also they also did operate in um, New York and in Brooklyn. uh, Yeah. Um, And even like I know Patterson is is Patterson, but closing down streets is still very expensive. And Patterson is an urban area, so I'm sure it's extra expensive. Um. The film has a cumulative worldwide gross of $74 million, which honestly is pretty fucking good. All things considered here, as, as we especially as we were able to compare it to other COVID releases. That's that's actually very good, honestly. Um, let's see this film. I'm looking for a tagline. Uh, a city divided. Their love will change everything. 
which is funny because uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure they're still at war at the, at the end of the movie, but whatever. Now, I don't think Romeo and Juliet ends with the with, with the Capulets and Montagues going, we're not so different, you and I. I'm pretty sure it's not how it ends. Whatever. That's a shitty tagline. Uh, this film is nominated for seven Oscars. It's nominated for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role for Ariana DeBosa, Best Motion Picture of the Year for Steven Spielberg and Christy Makosko Krieger, Best Achievement in Production Design for Adam Stockhausen and Reina D'Angelo, Best Sound for Todd A. Maitland, Gary Rydstrom, Brian Chumney, Andy Nelson, and Sean Murphy, Best Achievement in Costume Design for Paul Tazewell, Best Achievement in Cinematography for frequent Steven Spielberg collaborator Janusz Kaminski, and Best Achievement in Directing for Steven Spielberg. So, um, once again, I'm just going to take it away as, as we move through these. Um, I mean, we're talking about one of the tied for the second most, no, not tied for second most Oscars in Oscars history, the original of this movie. Ten Oscar awards, which is three more than this movie is even nominated for. Um, a, a, a really like a landmark movie and that's what makes this movie hard to talk about especially such a true remake of the movie because this I thought was very good but I, it's tough to fight nostalgia which is where I, I, I find myself often with remakes good remakes of good movies like I felt the same way about True Grit like the remake of True Grit is such a good movie, but I also loved the original. And I it, it's it's weird to watch good remakes of good movies because it's like, I, why am I com- comparing two good movies about the same? I'd rather the original of this movie suck dick so I could be like, oh, thank God someone made it right for once. And so I kept watching this movie and thinking to myself, that's not telling me. And I kept watching this movie like, 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 you know, um, fucking. Uh, that's not that's not Maria. That's not Anita. Uh, and I know I should do that, but it's a weird thing to fight, especially with this type of movie. Like if you are a kid who has any relatives interested in musical theater in the slightest, you have seen this movie 90 times before you hit the age of 10. And, and yeah. it's it's tough for that reason. I, I enjoyed it. I'm interested in hearing your point on it because this is a musical. I mean, you know me, I fucking cannot stand watching musicals. I realized watching this, I knew every single song in this film. It's wild, right? Like, my mom loves the original West Side Story. Loves it. One of her favorite films. For, you know, by all means, good intention. You know, there's a reason it's so good. Um, Or so beloved, I should say. It was a really well-made film that I would have loved if it wasn't a musical. I just am still a child and cannot get over that small barrier. Um, but God, I mean, the music almost sounded like they could have just copied the original and just played it over. It sounded excellent. The choreography was good. I don't think it blew me away. There were some where you could very clearly see like, oh, like that is that is a play right there. Like that is just a played movement, stuff like that. But outside of that, it was good. It's just not the original West side story. And I, I, I don't know how good or bad this film would have to be to 
really have this discussion focus on anything else. And that's it's part an of the and that that's part of the problem. I I think this movie did a lot of things really well. We talked, I think it was last episode, maybe two episodes ago, about doing like a period piece very seriously like this, like a very specific era in a very specific location. And I think they sure. did a good job of not making the 50s feel of the play feel hokey. I, I think it did feel sincere. I, I thought that the cinematography was great. Um, I thought the music was was well done. And I also thought it was interesting just to compare this real quick to a different movie we did. Um, there was a couple of songs that were definitely live audio for the singing that were really good. And it was so funny hearing it be so good when we did Annette a few weeks ago and this all the songs were live audio and they all sounded like complete fucking garbage. So like it can be done well. We just watched that, that movie. Yeah, that movie just sucked so much ass. Um, I sorry, I just wanted to sneak in a shot at Annette real quick. Um, but it, it's also, I also have a tough time with listening to the accents and taking them to not feel weird. Like Mike Faced, who who does uh, riff. I thought his accent was atrocious and I hated listening to it. Um, and he sounded like a, like a goddamn cartoon character. And yeah, also he looks like Austin Pendleton and I couldn't stop thinking it. I, I, I could not stop thinking of Austin Pendleton every single time he came on screen. I don't recall the name. I can't put a face to the name. Do you remember the um, public defendant in my cousin Vinny? Yes. That's Austin Pendleton. Oh, wow. Yeah. Every time he came on screen, I'm like, I don't know. You look like young Austin Pendleton. And I cannot buy Austin Pendleton as being like a street tough. <laughs> and one of the other parts about looking back on the 60s version of the movie is that it, 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 you know, it comes out four years after the play comes out. So the portrayals of the era are not just are not just still of the era. But they're also accurate to, to, you know, how people still talked. And I almost wish they went different with this and updated the, the, the dialogue, the setting, like really modernized it because they wouldn't have to change the songs very much. They wouldn't even have to change the location. But to have to watch somebody. And again, I, I think they did, did a good job, at least as far as production design and the majority of the actors, but every now and then, like it's weird having to listen to people try to do an Italian New York accent and not landing it. <laughs> like, I don't know about you, but it felt like Ansel Elgort's accent just kept coming and going. I did not realize he was doing one until about halfway through the movie. Right. And, the, and the, it's a shame because I thought his performance otherwise was great. I thought it was fine. I, I don't I, think I, any of the female actors I thought were really great. I could not give you any, you know, standout male actors in this, at least to me. Not even, not even that kid you went to high school with. Uh, 
he was really good and Quinn loves this scene uh, in the police station. Officer Krupke scene? Crazy. Yeah, the kid who's like on trial. Yeah. That, that was the one that we graduated with. Yeah, Cal pointed him out in every single scene. Good, good. Yeah. I was As I was watching, I was like, how am I going to describe this one random street tough that you would be able to pull from memory? Like, ah, he has a match in his mouth. Josh won't know that guy. Okay, let's find something else. I'm glad <laughs> Kel was there. Yeah, every single scene. Which is cool. Um, I also, I so desperately wish they changed it from Officer Krupke, Krupp you, to Officer Krupke, fuck you, which was the original line. And Sondheim changed it because they said he couldn't do that on Broadway. And I so <laughs> wish they flexed their PG-13 rating by saying fuck you. <laughs> Just, I wish they completely cut the fourth wall, broke through, and just like, yo, go fuck yourself, fuck the police, you piece of shit. Just something ridiculous and completely out of tone for the movie. Right. You know, why not? Well, but it's like, and I, I guess that's the point you and I are talking about, is it feels like if you're going to remake a classic, you have to do something different. Because otherwise, it's really more like a film school project than it is a movie. Because if you are so closely trying to match the original, why are you making it? And I was reading a little bit about the movie after I watched it, because I really did. And I'm not trying to sit here and say I didn't like it. I really did enjoy it. And I'm going to recommend people watch it. But like the cinematographer said that he did so much research to make sure that the lighting and the camera work were as close to the original as he could possibly make them. And I think that, but yeah, but I'm reading, I'm like, but fucking why, why did you need to remake it? Someone else already made that and it's beloved. Why don't you make it your way? Why don't you make it different? If I'm going to sit through a carbon copy of the 1961 West side story, with just better cameras and a different cast, I don't know why I'm supposed to care. I don't disagree with you at all. And it brings me to the one part of the movie that I absolutely adored and will will watch this movie again just for it, and that is Rita fucking Moreno. I love Rita Moreno. Already... And she in this movie is absolutely fucking perfect. Continue. That's all I have to say. She was amazing. She was absolutely amazing. She stole every scene she was in. Um, Her song, which I think was called Something Somewhere or something to that effect, I thought was fantastic. And I am so glad that she got a pretty decent amount of screen time because it's called somewhere, um, which was sung live on set. And again, sounded so much better than the movie. And that did. Um, and I'm so glad she got, she had real screen time. Cause when I saw that she was going to make an appearance in the film, I thought it was going to be um, a, uh, a, a cameo. And then when she was an actual character, I was like, Rita fucking Moreno. Love Rita Moreno. Um, she is an absolute gem of a human being. I like her. Yeah. Love Rita. Who won an Oscar for for this movie? Um, 
when it came out. Can you imagine being in a movie 60 years ago and then they ask you to be in the, the remake? Oh, that was her playing um, the aunt, grandmother? She was, she was the, yeah, she was the shop owner. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah, she originally, she was the original Anita, which is, who is played by Ariana DeBosa. Love that. Absolutely love. Those are like the little things that don't make or break a film, but it's such an awesome little detail to know. Yeah. Uh, if you didn't know that was Rita Moreno and she was an Oscar winner from the original version of this movie, I think she still plays a phenomenal part. Because um, Kel really didn't know who she was. And she was she was enjoying it. I had it. absolutely no idea. Yeah. And she, dude, she's 90 there. Rita Moreno is 90 years old in this movie and absolutely killing it. Hey, good on her. Good on her. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to say. I mean, like, it's weird to talk about it because all the songs are exactly the same from the original. Um, uh, they played played a CD through a boombox and that's how they recorded the audio. I I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And and, yeah. And because, you know, I'm struggling, I'm sitting here struggling to think about what they did differently from the original to even make a point about it. Which, as I said, is really, I guess, my my biggest problem with it. Um, and it also lends to this not really having much discussion for me. I, I mean, do, do you have anything? Um, no. Oh, uh, watching this as a child did not pick up on just the blatant racism. Um, that was a new uh, discovery on this watch. I'm sure it was there when I first watched it, but boy, missed it. Yeah, and it, and it's funny uh, because the sides are, I guess, supposed to be in a certain sense. Because if you watch Romeo and Juliet, or watch if you if you read the story, or oh, if you watch any of the movies, the families are relatively neutral in how you're supposed to feel about them. Uh, like, like neither side is right nor wrong it, or, or, or good nor bad, I guess I should say, outside of the fact that they're warring with each other. And in this movie, I don't know about you, but I find it hard not to be on the side of the Puerto Ricans um, because, yes, they're both technically in gangs, but it, in New York City, it seems as though it'd be significantly harder to be like the Puerto Rican side is very much so like we're a bunch of families and cousins who are just trying to get by. We have a song about just trying to get by. Whereas the white kids in the jets is very much so like, we just love being bad guys. And our song is about fuck the cops. (laughs) And it's, it's tough to not watch this movie with the lilt of, of um, without being on a side which is kind of funny for a Romeo and Juliet movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the opening scene of the movie, I don't remember how it is with the original movie, but it's just them like defacing public property, like petty vandalism. And the other guys just like kind of come in and are like, Hey, don't fucking do that. And then they fight. 
That's that's pretty one sided. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got nothing else. I really don't. Uh, yeah. I, I, do you have anything else before we do the ratings and reviews? I do not. I feel like we're giving this one a little bit short shrift, but it's also a long ass episode. And let's fucking move on with our day. Um, look, this is a good movie. Absolutely watch it. I say absolutely. I say, like This is a three and a half stars for me. It's really, really solidly done. I, I, I don't think if you were a fan of the original, I do not know necessarily what this gives you that the original would not outside of an all Latino cast for the, Puerto Rican side, which uh, new to watch, I guess you know. Natalie Wood <laughs> is mm-hmm. not Puerto Rican, <laughs> um, but from a filmmaking perspective, it is the exact same movie. Uh, but hey, three and a half stars. Corin, what do you got? Um, I'll give it three. As someone who really just cannot stand musicals, uh, it was enjoyable enough to get through and. If you do like musicals, it's West Side Story. I'm, I mean, that really is. If you like musicals, it's West Side Story. Yeah. What yeah. else can you say? Yeah, it, I, that's just absolutely. Yeah, they did nothing new <laughs> at all. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it's West Side Story. <laughs> uh, all right. Um. Okay, so that's this week's movies. We're 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 approaching the end of the Oscars films that we have to watch so the next week will be formatted very much so the same as this week um next week's movies will be uh kenneth brano's movie belfast uh it will be the sci-fi film that court and i have both already watched but man we haven't talked about it uh dune and it will be uh the worst person in the world which is the Gosh. name of the movie and uh, is one of the foreign film nominees. I'm pretty sure that's also nominated for some non-foreign film awards. So that should be interesting. Screenplay. That's the other one. Uh, so that's that's all three of them. They're all streaming in places, I think. Um, but Belfast, Dune, and The Worst Person in the World. And then we're almost there, folks. So stay with us. Uh, Corbin, anything else before we jump out of here? No, sir. All right. Well, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you want to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If I can follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. Like I said, emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next week, y'all have a good one. Bye.